and welcome to the Animal Chat Podcast with me, Matthew Payne. And me, Harry Ekman. Hello, Matt. What's going on? Harry, you don't know this, but guess what? What? I've just come from my Christmas party. A Christmas party? Yes. Well, a festive party. In the time of COVID? Yeah, an online festive party. Is that like the book Love in the Time of Cholera? Christmas party in the time of COVID? I don't know what that means, but no, no, I've just come from... It's quite a famous book, but... Of course, everyone has cholera. You, I know you keep telling me that. Well, they did when I was a child. Yeah, I bet they did. Um, <laughs> in the 20s. Um, 1820s. <laughs> so, I've just come from my festive party. Harry. Yeah. Hi. <laughs> Are you a bit drunk? No, I'm not, I'm not drunk. I've just had a drink and to celebrate because it's been a long year, hasn't it? The longest. Has this just been one of them or has this been several squeezed together? <sighs> Who knows? It's just been a nightmare, hasn't it? So um, my department, a few people put on a very nice festive get together and there was quizzes and things like that. What about you? What do you do at Chase for Animals at Christmas? Oh, we continue the hard work of rescuing animals because for us, it never stops. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Merry Christmas, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) But what are your Christmas plans, Matt? What have you got planned over Christmas? Well, Harry, it's not really a case of what I've got planned. It's what the government will let me do. What are the government going to let you do, Matt? Listen, I'm going to level with you now, Harry. In the UK, we apparently have a tier system. Every time I speak to somebody from the UK, they're in tears. So, <laughs> In terms of Christmas, what the UK are doing, this evening they're actually saying they're going to revise it because there's been a variant. I don't know if you can hear that. That's my cocker spaniel. That's your cocker spaniel just, in the background. Just yeah. shouting like a crazy little loose cannon that she is. Um, but we have variant strands, so we're very lucky. But um, in all seriousness, we have a tier system. But I actually think it's not going to be lifted. So I think it's going to be a very quiet Christmas, Harry, this year. What about you? Same here. The restrictions, I'm not sure if they've been fully announced yet, but the restrictions at Christmas mean that... Christmas is going to be a very subdued affair here as well. What's Christmas like in Portugal? Like, what do you eat? What's your tradition? Do you eat, like, turkey or do you eat, like, leaves or, like... Leaves? Yeah. You know, like, some weird... Let's test your knowledge of Portugal. Oh, no, God. Quiz me. How little do you know about this country? Yes, of course, the national Christmas dish of Portugal is leaves. Because this is a country inhabited by herbivores. It's mostly cattle here. You just have giraffes. That's not a very nice thing to say about Cristiano Ronaldo. I think he's a very fine <laughs> footballer, actually. Um, he is. And considering he survives on leaves, exactly. he's an excellent football player. Well, Harry, tell me, what is like a traditional... A traditional Christmas dish. It's basically a cod-based dish. Uh, so it's salted cod, potatoes, onions in a kind of creamy sauce. And so what I do is I make a vegetarian option of that. My wife is shaking her head saying You don't that... make you don't make a vegetarian option. What? <laughs> what do you mean I'm wrong? Unbelievable. What's the traditional one then? According to my wife, yeah. who has just corrected me. And, I'm sorry, who is Portuguese, can I just say? Who is Portuguese, on, so you would hope would know this far better than me, yes. and has proven that point. A traditional Portuguese dish is boiled cod with potatoes and cabbage. But what we're actually planning on doing with Christmas this year, which I think is what a lot of people are doing, 
is we're going to do it via Skype, kind of making arrangements with my family that wherever they happen to be, we'll put Zoom on or Skype on and we'll try and see each other over Christmas and have dinner together that way. Isn't it weird how we kill turkeys at Christmas? I don't know how turkeys got to be the Christmas bird. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. It's not like chickens get off easy because they're killed the entire year along with the billions of other animals. But from a turkey's point of view, why not reindeer? (laughs) I mean, if you're going to associate an animal with Christmas, does reindeer not make more sense? Yeah, I suppose. Definitely more festive. Yeah, but they're kind of nice, aren't they? What do you got against turkeys, you bastard? (laughs) So, Harry... What has been your highlight of 2020, both personal and cultural? It's this podcast, obviously. This podcast has been the highlight of not just my 2020, but yours and everybody else that's listened to it, I'm sure. It isn't actually on my list. Really it's sorry. not on your list. Are you serious? You bastard. I well, I tune in for season it, three of the Animal Chat podcast with a brand new co-host. <laughs> um, do you want me to share you mine? Yes. So, culturally, Joe Biden winning the presidency, in a year full of absolute bullshit, that was a rare light. And also, my personal one for this year highlights has been, fuck, I don't know, actually. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Do you remember, on the last podcast, we asked our listeners if they had any questions for us? Yeah, not a single person got in touch with me. What about you? I got one person, Caroline Shilton, regular listener. Fan of the podcast. Knew there was one. Hello, Caroline, by the way. Thank you for listening. She's asked a question for us, which is about the work that we do. How did you transition into your career in behavior change for animals from your previous career path? So, Matt, how did you transition into your current position involved in human behavior change? That's a very good question, Harry and Caroline. Thank you for your question, Caroline. In a very short answer, I understand what you mean, Caroline. I came from a background where I wasn't in any way a human behavior change specialist. I went to a conference on it. I thought, this sounds amazing. And for five years, I worked my absolute backside off to try and get some sort of knowledge. And I still don't know what I'm talking about most of the time. Um, But that's fine. We all need to admit that sometimes. But yeah, what about you, Harry? I was very lucky in that when I used to work at Whisper, I was working with somebody called Suzanne Rogers, who is one of the pioneers of human behavior change in animals. And so when this started to become a thing in animal welfare, I was there as these things were being developed. So I was able to learn from people who were pioneering it. And it's still an area of animal welfare that is in its infancy. There's a huge need for it. But no, I was just in the right place at the right time, to be honest. I was just very, very lucky to be working with people who had expertise on this and I was on the periphery of it and was able to be involved to some degree. But anyway. Yeah. So, Harry, who is this week's guest on the Animal Chat podcast, the last Animal Chat podcast of 2020 and of season two. We have been saving this one. We actually did this recording way back in July, which is now 15 and a half years ago, or at (laughs) least it feels like it. Matt, have you heard of Veganuary? Well, I have, Harry, and I've had one failed attempt uh, lasted about a week. 
I'm a terrible Veganuary person. Have you heard of it? No, no, never heard of it. What is it? Um, I think what it is, in July, everyone becomes a vegan and that, isn't it? I think so. I'm pretty sure that's it. Well, Veganuary started in 2014. It started as a pledge for people to just try veganism for the month of January. Okay. And in that first year, back in 2014, it was a few thousand signups. This year, Veganuary 2021, over a million signups. No. Over a million signups as of like a week ago. And this podcast, yes, we have Matthew Glover, who is the founder of Veganuary, the guy that started the Veganuary revolution, amongst other things that he's going to be talking about on the podcast. We have got Matt Glover. And it was a bit awkward when we were interviewing because you're Matt and he's Matt. And so... I kept asking questions and you both answered, which was weird because I don't know why you would bother answering questions about Veganuary. It was just awkward. But you heard your name and you were like a cocker spaniel. If you say my name, I'll come a calling. So uh, I'm so sorry about that. But yes, Matthew's just awesome. I really like him. I really like people that are... It's because he's from the north, isn't it? Listen, I mean, yeah. He's one of yours. He's one of ours. We've been through the snow and the rain. <laughs> We've had to forage for our food. Um, but Matthew was in a position where he saw that no one else was doing the idea that he had, but he made it reality. And he was also driving this when there wasn't the sort of shift that we've maybe seen more recently. You know, this was in the days where if you asked for vegetarian mayo, people looked at you like you're the Satan reincarnated. People would just spat in your face and told you <laughs> that's all the vegetarian mayo you're going to get. Imagine asking for that when you haven't even got a roof on your house. I mean, that's the sort of situation Matt was in in the north. <laughs> we should just mention that the sound is a little bit iffy in a couple of places in the podcast. You'll still hear it. Everything's fine. But yeah, it's yeah. it's got that kind of digital Skypey feel in a couple of moments. So I just want to apologize for that. We tried to tidy the sound up as best as possible. But, you know, this is the world we live in with digital communication and recording online. Yeah. But anyway, this is the Animal Chat podcast with Matt Glover, founder of Veganuary, just in time for this year's Veganuary Sign Up 2021. Here it is. I know that before Veganuary took off, you were an activist, you were involved in animal rights and you were an animal rights activist. Where did that start from? Where did your passion for animal rights and animal welfare come from? Was it something that was from childhood or was it something that you found your way into? Where did the passion and the drive come from in the first place? Well, it took me a long time actually to get into the animal rights space. I think if we Going to the very beginning, then my family on my mother's side were butchers and meat traders. So as a child, I used to spend time in, in slaughterhouses and butcher shops. And uh, I don't particularly remember it being harrowing. It was just that was life, you know, when your family sort of in that business. It just seemed normal to me. I always understood, I guess, that the meat that was on my plate had been a, a living 
breathing animal, which I think probably a lot of kids today probably don't necessarily make that connection. So I, I certainly did. And as a result of that, I wasn't overly keen on meat as a child. So I would try and eat the veggies more so than the meat. But, you know, I certainly wasn't vegetarian. It would have been quite unpopular in my family to be vegetarian as a child. Um, so I went through um, school and university and then started up a business. And uh, it wasn't until I was 28. And I can't even remember what happened, but I just decided that I didn't want to eat meat anymore. I felt uncomfortable about it. I wasn't really enjoying it. So just overnight, I became a vegetarian. But, you know, it wasn't necessarily for ethical reasons it was you know just something I felt uncomfortable about and it just felt right and then it wasn't until I got to the age of around about 38 or 39 that I stumbled across a, a video on the internet and it said it was like a clickbait advert it said the video of the meat industry doesn't want you to see and I was sort of curious so I clicked on it and it, it took me through to a page uh, it was a five minute video and I watched it and it was obviously scenes of cruelty in in the meat industry but there was also eggs and dairy. And, you know, I'd never really thought about that before. You know, I, I was sort of shell-shocked, really, and realised that being vegetarian wasn't enough. So I, I had to stop. I had to boycott those industries. I, You know, I didn't want to put money into that industry anymore with my own purchases. So overnight, you know, I was a double-glazing guy in Wakefield in West Yorkshire. Never met a vegan before. Overnight, I became one, which was a bit weird. And what year was that? Well, do you know, the funny thing is, a lot of people have these veganiversaries, and I never put it in my diary. It was just something that happened and probably didn't realise how important it was for me at the time. But uh, I think probably about nine years ago, 2011. And how was that shift to becoming a vegan in the north of England? What are you insinuating about the north of England there, Harry? Are you insinuating that it's... <laughs> what are you insinuating... Come on, Harry, you've got two Northerners on now. Yeah, and you can defend yourselves. <laughs> <laughs> I was running a double glazing company at the time. So, you know, I was dealing with builders, joiners, plasterers, very male-orientated sort of industry. That Typical I vegans. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, so when it happened, um, I mean, I had hummus every day for about a month. <laughs> um, I can't even eat hummus anymore. I sort of overdosed on it. And years ago, whenever it was, there wasn't a great deal of options, alternatives. I remember being, I was launching another business and I was on, on the road quite a lot. And uh, I remember the first few times going into service stations on the motorways. And literally the only things that you could eat would be peanuts and maybe an apple. And that was it. This was before there was Marks and and Waitrose and such like on the motorway services. So it was, you know, there'd be quite a few days where if I wasn't prepared, you know, I'm, I'm hungry. You know, I'm really hungry waiting to get home. So obviously so much progress uh, in society since then. But yeah, it was tough. What were the next stages from then, Matthew, on your journey? You know, you turned vegan, you said in your late 30s. How long was that until you took the step from getting more involved in animal rights activism? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I, I spent a bit of time at the beginning just sort of researching the space, if you like. So I watched videos. I did research. I came across this term speciesism and uh, started looking into that, you know, and that made a lot of sense to me. And then I found that there was uh, a movie called Speciesism, the movie. So I contacted the guy 
And I wanted to help. So at the beginning, it started with me just donating money to different charities and projects. And I contacted Mark DeVries, the, the director of that movie, and sent him some money just to help with uh, promoting the film. And uh, he sent me an email back and said, Matthew, you know, we're doing our launch, actually, at the Animal Rights Conference in Washington, D.C. And I was like, they have a conference for animal rights? Um, <laughs> so I thought, I'm going to have to go to that. So I literally, I booked flights, turned up at this conference. I think it was probably the first time I'd really met other vegans and just immersed myself, you know, in all of the lectures. And, you know, I'm a natural sort of bond network. So on the evenings, hung out at the bar, <laughs> met people and just sucked up as much information as I could, really. And I remember meeting one woman called Lisa Shapiro, who sadly has passed away since I met her, but an incredible woman, and she was so experienced. And I remember saying to her, look, you know, I'm a guy from the north of England. My background's in selling stuff. You know, I'm pretty good at marketing, building businesses, organizing things. You know, what do you think I should be doing to help the animals? Should I be getting involved in marches? Should I be stood outside McDonald's with a big sign saying, don't go in here? Or should I be going into factory farms and doing undercover investigations and rescuing animals? You know, what should I be doing? And, and Lisa said to me, Matthew, what are you good at? I was, I was like, well, sales and marketing. She said, well, do sales and marketing for the animals. And I was like, of course, that's what I should be doing. So I met Jane, my wife. Well, she was my wife when we first met, obviously. <laughs> we met on a, a vegan dating site. And um, she's from Grimsby. And, and she was only vegetarian at the time. Um, it was a bit of a con, this website, because I thought I was going to meet a proper vegan girl. But um, <laughs> anyway, um, after about the third date, she joined me as a vegan. And then, you know, because it had become so important to me, I was talking about it a lot. It became important to her as well. She'd been very much interested in the environmental movement, social justice more generally. So it was an extension of that. So I was learning a lot from her in, in terms of, you know, like feminism, I'd not really thought about that stuff. Again, in the window industry in Wakefield, it's not something that you and your mates talk about very much. He's, <laughs> you know, teaching me a lot of stuff. And um, we went to the Animal Rights Conference again. We came back and we were like, come on, we need to set something up. And I'd taken part in this campaign called Movember, where you grow a moustache for the month of November. Quite enjoyed it. We raised some money for prostate cancer research which I since realized that they test on animals. But anyway, this is pre-vegan days. So me and Jane were just talking. We said, well, it'd be nice to do something that's got that same sort of buzz and vibe as what the Movember campaign has got. And so we said, well, what about getting people to go vegan for a month? And then it was, okay, well, which month would it be? And, you know, the more we thought about it, it had to be January because people do New Year's resolutions and it tends to be a month where people think about their health a lot more maybe eating too much food at Christmas. And so we had vegan in January. Well, let's put it together, veganuary. And uh, it's obviously a really corny word, but it seemed to work and resonate with people almost from the beginning. And that was that idea, that first idea of putting veganuary together. What was that, 2014? Yeah, it was middle of 2013 that we had the idea, September 2013. So we went, Jane and I, to a website company and said, we've got this idea and they were quite interested in it. So we were funding it all of ourselves the first two or three years, pretty much. 
So we said, we want to build a website. It's going to be called veganuary.com. Let's check the domain names available. Ooh, nobody's bought that one yet. So we got that set up. The website launched probably in back end of November 2013 and then just started promoting it through December. So the first ever campaign was January 2014, yeah. I I guess it was more like a pilot scheme that first year in as much as we just wanted to test the concept. And then we were going to reevaluate in February whether or not it had been a good idea. So by the time we'd finished, we knew that we had 3,300 people that had signed up on the website. We knew that we'd been in The Guardian and The Daily Mail and a lot of buzz created. So we were very lucky, I think, in many respects, because it just seemed to resonate with people, the idea. And because there'd been Movember and Stoptober and all these other campaigns where they're based around the month, it sort of made sense to certainly the media and to people that what we were doing, I guess. So then it was um, now what do we do in sort of February, March? So we decided to do it properly from then onwards. So we scrapped the original website and the original brand, invested a lot more money in a new website and everything and realised that this was going to be something that we were going to spend a lot of our time and effort on. Do you, when you look back, do you think it's helpful that you had those years of experience working in sales and marketing before you actually started Veganuary. What was the role that that experience, that background in sales and marketing, and obviously your partner's background as well, what role did that play, do you think, in it being such a success so quickly? Oh, I think it definitely helped. I've joked with people before, but um, veganism and double glazing are quite similar in many respects because nobody really wants double glazing. But from our perspective, yes, they do, you know. So you've got to convince people to buy those windows and doors. Nobody really wants to go vegan, but they really should. So we've got to put that case forward. So it is a a marketing role, if you see what I mean. It's quite tenuous, I appreciate that (laughs) analogy. (laughs) But it comes back to, I guess, what the question that you're asking, this idea that you're continuously uh, selling and marketing and trying to get more people into the pipeline and keep your business going that mentality sort of followed on into the January I guess in as much as we wanted to keep growing the campaign in the same way that we wanted to grow the window company so there's a lot of the skills without even knowing it sort of crossed over looking back now a lot of people sort of say you know you must be so proud of what you've achieved and and you must be amazed at everything and I am and we are but you know, there's still so much further to go. And, you know, I still get frustrated that the whole world isn't doing Veganuary rather than, do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. People say to me, were you surprised at how well it went, you know, and how much you've achieved? And and I'm like, well, no, actually, I thought I'd do a lot better than this, to be honest. (laughs) When you are a business person and a salesperson, you tend to naturally be more positive and believe in yourself and want to sort of go for the stars. And so we, that was pretty much how it started. I mean, actually, Jane's very different to me. When we started the first campaign, I remember us saying, you know, how many people did we want? And I think I was, I said, well, well, I think we should get a thousand people. And Jane was expecting only a hundred. So she's always sort of pulls me back a little bit, I guess, with my expectations. What was the increase year on year? Because obviously it grew enormously beyond I imagine what either of you could have predicted but what was the first year that was that 3,000 and then the second year and the third year and consecutive years? I think year two was about 12,800, year three was 23,500, year four was about 60,000, 
year five would have been about 150,000. And then 2020, this year, we got over 400,000. It's amazing. So it's, it's been roughly doubling in size. I have worked out if we can keep doubling in size by 2031, everybody in the world will be doing Veganuary. So, <laughs> but the likelihood is not going to be able to maintain that. In fact, as, so, so there's a whole team that runs it now. Veganuary has evolved into a, a charity. It's self-sustainable. We depend on, on donations from the public, obviously. We've got a, a CEO, myself and Jane are trustees. There's now nine trustees of the board. I'm chair of the board, but there's a team there now that we trust to sort of take it to the next level. I actually think the charity going forward is in a better place without us being so involved in it on a day-to-day basis because they've got a broader skill set, really. But we decided that the target for 2021 is going to be 500,000. So it's not doubling, but we just feel that it's going to be very difficult to maintain that trajectory. And also, in terms of it's not just about signups. What we're finding is that probably the biggest impact that we've had, which wasn't, to be honest, something that we anticipated when we first started, was how the commercial supermarkets and chain restaurants and food manufacturers would embrace the idea and work within as veganuary as being a time in the month where it's about vegan options. So it's a bit like you know, you've got Halloween and a lot of businesses work towards creating product ranges for Halloween or Christmas or Easter or barbecue season. And Veganuary now is on a lot of calendars where companies work towards developing products for that month because they see it as being the perfect time to launch new products because not only have you got your existing vegan community and vegetarian community, you've also got these additional people that are giving it a go for a month. So it's an unintended consequence, but it's actually probably been the most important aspect of Veganuary. And it's something that as a team now, we put a lot more effort into. We spend a lot of time engaging with chain restaurants, trying to encourage them to work with us and to bring more, put more options on the menu and um, go out there and, and meet the supermarkets and give them advice as well so that they're better prepared to be able to meet the demand that increases in January. So it's not just about signups these days. The other sort of important focus on is, is the media as well. So we put a lot more effort into the PR aspect so that we're trying to make sure that we're getting TV appearances, that we're appearing on the radio, that the newspapers are writing about it. Because the more it becomes, we talk about it, it becomes more mainstream and it becomes more acceptable to be vegan or to be moving in that direction. What I'm really interested in as well, Matt, is that you said a couple of times there that Jane, it's really good that she's able to rein in your sort of ambitions occasionally. How did you go about choosing just looking at a single month? And I'm just really interested in that sort of, were you tempted to try and extend that, ever think about doing it for longer? Or were you quite easy to uh, get on board with just looking at, a month being a good starting point. Yeah, this is something that gets discussed at our board level and it's suggested on a regular basis by people that maybe we should do something in the summer, for example, do a vegan June or July. But my view is that it would be counterproductive to do that because you create then quite a mixed message about what our organisation is about. We feel that you might lose the edge of the January aspect if you also 
tried to get one in June. I mean, Christmas wouldn't be the same if it happened twice a year, would it? You know, people wait and get excited around something that happens on an annual basis. So what we tend to do is we'll support other campaigns. You know, we'll promote No Meat May, for example, which is a similar sort of concept to what we do. Based in Australia, we'll help promote that. There's World Plant Milk Day that's coming up shortly, so we'll support the team there. And also the team have been working on, they did a chicken week a few weeks ago where just for the whole of a week, the focus is on raising awareness about how chickens in factory farms are treated you know, the health angle, all the different aspects, just building a whole campaign over one week about chickens. And the reason for that is because the numbers of chickens that are eaten compared to other animals is just horrendous. And then a similar vein, we do a fish week, which I think is the working on that right now. So it's, again, just trying to encourage people to take a, a week off eating chicken or a week off eating fish, and then educating people about why this is such an important thing to be doing. But I think the beauty of January is that it's a once in a year campaign. And it's also, you know, the team don't sort of take 11 months of the year off. I mean, they're working hard for the full 12 months because so much <laughs> got to do so much engaging with uh, all the companies to make sure they're prepared and working with them to help them with their launch products. It, it has been a challenge because, uh, you know, we've, when it comes to raising money, we've had it a few times with people saying, well, I don't understand why we would donate to a campaign when you were only doing it for one month of the year. What are you doing for the rest of the year? But I can assure everybody that's listening, well, the team's working very hard. It started in the UK, but is Veganuary now being picked up in other countries? Do you have an international presence? Yeah, actually, that's a really great question. I mean, it's always been international from the very first campaign we got people in the US, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Canada, mostly English speaking in those very early days because the campaign was all in the English language. But gradually over the years the numbers taking part in the rest of the world has increased and then since uh, last year our CEO is German based in Berlin and we now have a team in Berlin so Germany has become a key country for us and we also now have our first campaign manager in the US as well. So those three countries have a lot more effort put into them and we're working on corporate outreach in each of those three key countries. We also see Latin America as being a key area for us. There's a lot of interest in veganism and vegetarianism in Latin America. So we have some team members there now uh, preparing this next campaign. One of the reasons why we see it as such a key area is that the advertising cost in Latin America is so much less than what it would be in the UK, US or Germany. So we get better bang for our buck with our marketing spend. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, Harry, you're in Portugal. You know, we've yeah. had people taking part in Portugal and activists helping us get the word out. We've got all sorts of different groups. We had a great campaign in Italy last year. It's a great team there. Sweden is another key country for us. So it, it is. It's spreading. The only thing that holds us back really is resources and, and funding, really, because I still feel that January is a sleep giant. I think it, particularly to the world, I think in the UK, we've got a degree of traction. Oh, there was a, a YouGov research recently, and um, they came back to us and said that 40% of the UK population is aware of the January, of the brand. That's amazing. Yeah, it is. I mean, I was initially, well, what about the other 60%, you know? <laughs> um, but compared to a lot of other you know and i do see us as an animal rights group compared to other animal rights groups then you know we've done pretty well 
How was giving up the control for you and Jay, Matthew? I know you're extremely still involved in the organisation, but how was that initial transition to putting a new CEO in place, putting a different team? I know you said that that's brought a lot of benefits. Was it a step away or was it just that you did different things and was that challenging at any point for you? Part of the reason why we decided to go down this route was myself and Jane were incredibly burnt out. You know, when you're trying to run, certainly in the early stages, you know, I was running two businesses, uh, the window manufacturing business, and also um, I was running a trade show as well. So you're juggling Veganuary and, and trying to earn money as well to keep funding that, which, you know, in its own right can be stressful. So there came a point, I can't remember exactly the dates, but we were just, you know, there's been t- times where you just think, oh, we've had enough pack it in but because the campaign's got momentum it would be wrong to do that probably not even stop veganuary anymore i think it's something that just is likely to happen but the beauty of the campaign and the group behind it is they're stimulating that to keep going as well we initially hired one ceo myself and jane sort of stepped totally back at that point in time and you know things didn't work out i mean the ceo was great skills in many areas but after about over a year of being in charge we felt that it wasn't really getting its full potential so yeah long story cut short we did a restructuring and then we brought in rear as a ceo around about march of um, last year so she's been running the team for probably about 18 months now and she's just fallen into it so well i mean she's just an amazing individual she's running the organization way better than i think me and jane ever could far more professional they always say you should try and hire people that are better than yourself and i think in you know in that respect with Rhea, that's what we've been able to do and she's now handpicked her own team so there's you know the senior management team are all talented as well and even though it's been to answer your question it's it's been bumpy but now the position that we're in it's such a relief knowing that Veganuary going forward is in such good hands and we can work on other projects now knowing that Veganuary, that we're not going to be stressed out when it gets to December and January because there's a team there that really knows what they're doing. And uh, so I'm, I'm excited about it. And I, I would hope that Veganuary is still there in 20 years, 25 years. Well, no, I want everybody to be in 2025 years, but you know what I mean, that still <laughs> that we're getting there. <laughs> I think that that's a really powerful message, Matthew, because Harry and I have spoken on this podcast a few times now about the challenges of working in this industry and emotional resilience is becoming an important and rightly so issue that's being discussed. And I think particularly with animal welfare and conservation and any sort of issues, it can be emotionally draining as well as I can imagine when you're starting up your own organization, like I said, you had other jobs on at the same time as well. It's okay sometimes to take a step back or to get someone in mm-hmm. to else support your work. And while that, even the idea, Matthew, of you stepping away from Veganuary almost makes me anxious. That's sort of control issues I have. <laughs> um, you know, it, it is really important for that message to be shared, I think, and particularly from people who have been so successful and are running such an incredible project like yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's not easy, but it's you have to let go at times. And, you know, I've done it in my business. The window company, eventually I sold it to my management team because I trusted them to run the business. And I think after a while they got fed up that they were doing all the work and uh, I was messing around with this vegan stuff. So they wanted rid of me then. But that was great. 
brought in people that could do the job better than me. So it's allowed me to then work on other projects. So we then pivoted onto the Million Dollar Vegan campaign. Initially, the idea was to do it for Veganuary. So the idea for listeners that don't know is we offered a million dollars to Pope Francis to go vegan for the month of Lent and the money would go to a charity of his choosing. Now, initially, the idea was to do it for January. And then, like, Veganuary is, as a campaign, is friendly, it's non-judgmental. We're working with all of these uh, organisations. Whereas Million Dollar Vegan, from the outset, it was clear that it was going to be a little bit more controversial. It's going to be edgy. So we thought long and hard, should we be asking the Pope to go vegan for January for a million dollars? Or, you know, maybe Lent is a more obvious period of time. So we set up a separate organization for it. And this was where we had a team that January that could run it while we're working on this new thing. I'm somebody that likes setting things up, by the way, and not necessarily sticking with them. Um, <laughs> but it was a fun time sort of creating this campaign and we got a lot of media attention for it. Obviously, the Pope didn't go vegan for Lent, but we never really expected that he would. But we did manage to raise the issues associated with animal agriculture to a new audience, a more conservative audience, an audience in countries that maybe are not hearing the vegan word all the time. So, in fact, Harry, I think we did quite well in Portugal. We got a lot of TV and radio appearances there. Spain, Italy, Latin America did very well as well. So, so that was fun. And then if Pope Francis wasn't controversial enough, we then went moved our attention on to President Trump and uh, <laughs> and we offered him a million to go vegan for January as a sort of a side project. I can't imagine him going vegan for a single meal. No, no. And he never replied to us, funnily enough. But, you know, we managed to That's get... That's so weird. That's so unlike him. <laughs> we managed to get on the Fox News website. It's the first time the word vegan has ever gone on the Fox News website. So that was an achievement. And I think we got something like 125,000 people signed up to go vegan for January on the Million Dollar Vegan campaign, not Veganuary. But now that campaign, I've been quite happy to hand that over to somebody else who's running the campaign better than us. Uh, Naomi, and uh, so it's carrying on. In light of COVID, we don't think it's appropriate to be doing the million-dollar offers at the moment. But what we have been doing is vegan food giveaways, doing a lot in Latin America, in India, you know, the very poorest in society and, and offering them good, wholesome food at the same time, engaging with the people and sharing information about vegan food and hoping that um, we're helping them in the short term, but also in the long term as well. I'm curious, Matthew, before when we were talking about how you said that there's been signups in 2019, there was 400,000 signups to Veganuary, but obviously there are lots of people year on year, as you said, you're working with the food sector and the retail sector and uh, hospitality sector and everything from Pizza Hut to Pizza Express and Subway and KFC and every supermarket not only do they have their veganuary specials, but obviously they're introducing more and more throughout the year of different vegan options. And it's a huge, huge growth area in the food sector. I was reading recently, it's the biggest area of growth across the entire food industry that they've seen in many, many years. And so a lot of that has come as a result of the investment in plant-based alternatives and impossible foods and Beyond Burger and all of those guys and everybody else that's working in the same way. And so do you think that it's almost just kind of a very fortunate and fortuitous 
bit of timing on your part that as you're promoting veganery, there are so many more alternatives that make it so much easier for people to be able to take that up and for these businesses to go, well, actually, if we're going to make a vegan alternative, then look at all of these available products that we can incorporate into our meals and produce. And so how much of that do you think has led to the success of veganery, the almost the ease and availability of the food that people are accessing now? I think there probably two sides of the same coin to some extent. I remember speaking to Seth Tibbet from Tofurky, who you should get on this podcast. He's an amazing guy, my favorite person in the whole world. But he was saying that a lot of the campaigns like Veganuary and all the groups in the US, they're like free marketing departments for Tofurky. And it's the same for Impossible Beyond Meat. You know, would they have had the success? that they've had without Mercy for Animals and Vegan Outreach and the Vegan Society and Veganuary and all of these different organizations. So it's a supply and demand thing, isn't it? You know, we've been through the Veganuary campaign on the demand side, raising awareness of the issues and helping to create a demand for the products. And then the Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat and Tofurky are working on the supply side. So I see it all as a similar movement. Um, I don't know if you're aware, Harry, but I'm moving more into that space. So I've, that's my new job. I've created a, an investment firm called Veg Capital, and I've got some mission-aligned investors that are supporting the organization. And uh, what we're currently doing is investing seed capital into sort of promising entrepreneurs, great founders with great products, because it's something that I clearly saw through Veganuary was that you get to a point where you've got to be really committed to want to stick with being vegan for the longer term. And we'd always do the surveys in February and then, you know, we'd analyze the information that comes back to us from people that have taken part in January. And it's very clear that the price, the taste and the convenience of products needs improving. The amount of people that complain that just the vegan cheese options that they were trying were not good enough. So I came to that sort of realization that maybe I need to go back into the commercial world and work on the supply side and try and help stimulate much better options that are price competitive with animal-based and that are available in all of the outlets. So that's a bit of a long-winded answer to your question. <laughs> well, no, but I remember you saying something uh, maybe a year or so ago. Correct me if I'm wrong, how you had met with um, sandwich production people. It may have been with Tesco's, but one of the other big supermarket chains. And you'd had a conversation with them about, and it made me laugh because obviously when you were talking about getting sick of hummus, for the longest time, if you were a vegan and you wanted a sandwich for lunch, then it was pretty much hummus. That was it. That was all you were going to get. Yeah. Or falafel. Occasionally falafel and hummus. But I remember you saying something that they were looking at providing sandwich options and alternatives for vegans, and you asking them what the most popular sandwich was. And I think you said it was bacon, lettuce, tomato. And it was like, well, then just do a vegan bacon, lettuce, tomato. Not every vegan wants hummus. Some of us want a bacon alternative or a cheese alternative or a turkey alternative and anything alternative, but the same thing, just not with the meat or dairy. Yeah, absolutely. This was an opportunity where I got to speak to the Insights team at Greencore. And Greencore, a massive supplier of sandwiches and wraps to uh, a lot of the supermarkets. So if you go to a Boots or a WH Smith's and you see a WH Smith sandwich, it's probably been made by Greencore. So I got the opportunity to speak to these guys and they were showing me the products that they were working on. And 
you know, it was, it was like a salad sandwich. What do you think to that? And I'm like, well, would you eat a sandwich? <laughs> well, they're like, no, but we're making it for you guys. You're the vegans. And I'm like, what makes you think a vegan wants to eat a salad sandwich? <laughs> you know, we want a protein supplement. <laughs> we want to feel full at the end of eating that sandwich. And it was something that they hadn't thought about. You've got teams within organizations that are not vegan themselves, that don't understand how we think. The other thing that I tried to get across to them was that it's great that, you know, you need to be making tasty options for vegans, but also think about everybody. You know, if you can make something that's plant-based vegan, that the vegans can enjoy, but also everybody else is interested in it, then you're not going to find that you got stuck with these sandwiches on the shelf that are not selling. So it's just a case of changing perceptions. And, and that's why I strongly believe that we need to work with these organizations. We need to infiltrate and integrate with these organizations because, mm. you know, the way everything is structured at the moment, the vegan companies are so small that, you know, we can't have massive change for animals without getting these big, big operations on board because it's going to happen a lot quicker if they see the benefit. And ultimately, it's money. Of course, it's money that's going to do it. But if they can see that it makes mm. sense for them to develop more plant-based products and gradually keep increasing them, then um, they'll do it. Is there any data or information on the curiosity factor? So you said there's 4,000 people that sign up to Veganuary, but there's a lot more people that might not do it for the month, but they'll go, well, if there's a vegan option, I'll try it because I'm in this restaurant or I'm in this supermarket and there's this promotion and I'll give it a go because it looks good or it looks interesting. There's a lot of people who aren't going for the Veganuary option or, or the full vegan option, whether it be for the month or longer term, but they're definitely cutting down and these alternatives are providing that. And so when you speak to these supermarkets or these manufacturers, what proportion of their customer are they looking at as the occasional healthy eating, looking for a delicious alternative? And how much of it are they focusing specifically on the hardcore vegan or vegetarian? The conversations that I've had is that they're all focused on the flexitarian market. Because if 1% of the population is vegan, then it's not a big enough market to put substantial time and effort investment into just catering for 1% of the population. But there's lots of research out there, Harry, I'm sure you've seen it, that's suggesting that a proportion of the population particularly younger, urban, more female demographic that are wanting to shift away from eating too much meat, too much dairy. So they're not necessarily fully vegetarian, they're not fully vegan, but you know they understand and they're wanting to eat more plant-based foods. So that's where the interests. And that's something when I'm talking to these organizations, I'm focusing more on that as well. And there's interesting sort of dilemmas I have as a vegan in this scenario, because for example, if you've got a company and they're developing a brownie that's vegan, do they go out there and promote it as a vegan brownie? Or do they go out there and promote it as a brownie that is suitable for vegans? And my view is the latter, because sometimes if you put the word vegan in front of a product, then people will actually think, well, that's not going to taste as good if it's a vegan one. A bit like a gluten-free one. You know, <laughs> me being somebody that's not a celiac gluten-free, I'm going to lose a bit on taste there, so I'm not going to have that. And I think there's a population, a lot of people would feel the same about vegan. Alternative, they'll think, well, that is a brownie for vegans and skip past it. You know, my view is, um, unless we're specifically targeting a vegan audience, then that's a different thing. But if you're trying to target flexitarians, then I would not going too big on the vegan word. And that's, I guess, why everything is plant-based now as opposed to vegan, because it does step away from that. Yeah, 
Having said that, there's always exceptions to the rules. So Greg's with their vegan sausage roll did very well with calling it a vegan sausage roll, which sort of poo-poos my theory there. But, um, <laughs> you know, on the whole, um, I think create great products and sell it as food to everybody. And I think we'll get there quicker if we think like that. What's the most valuable lesson you've learned since starting your project? Hmm. What happens to a lot of us when we first make that connection and go vegan is you've come on this new realization. You want the whole world to think the same way as you. And you go out there fully expecting that if you share this new information that you've got about cruelty to animals or environmental impact or the health benefits of a plant-based diet, very quickly you realize that most people don't want to hear it. You know, in the very early days, I was a loudmouth. I wanted everybody to do it. And then you get frustrated and then it's annoying. And why are people not listening to me? You know, I've got this important information. I've gone vegan. You should do it as well. And so then you start to gradually evolve your skill sets, don't you? Or your tone of voice and your language to be less judgmental and just try and be a great ambassador yourself for this way of life and hope that people are more responsive that way. So I try to be diplomatic. I, I try not to be offensive in all communications with people. Not always easy. I'm not always get it right. But um, I had a great opportunity last year where I was invited by a representative from the Guild of Agricultural Journalists. I was invited to go and talk at one of their committee meetings. So I went in. Basically, it was about 30 people from the farming industry and one vegan talking to them. And it was a bit scary <laughs> before I went in because I thought, you know, I'm going to get lynched here. But well, firstly, they were lovely. They'd made me some vegan sandwiches before we started. And they were very just generally interested in the perspective that we have. At the very beginning of my talk, you know, I went around the room and asked everybody to put their hands up to certain questions. I said, who in the room cares about climate change? And everybody put their hand up. And who here cares about, you know, a loss of biodiversity in the countryside? And everybody put their hand up. And I said, who here disagrees with animal cruelty? Everybody put their hand up. And I said, well, that's how vegans think. We share the same values. We're just interpreting it slightly differently. But, you know, effectively, we're on the right side. And, um, yeah, it was really to listen to that perspective. I did the talk for about 40 minutes. And we had like two hours of me chatting with all these people. And it's great then to absorb their perspective. And certainly if we're going to fix these issues, then we need to work with the farming community. If we don't engage with farmers, then it's going to be so difficult to make change. Absolutely. It's something that Matt and I have discussed on this podcast and something that we both absolutely subscribe to, which is that there are so many examples of projects around the world that absolutely you need to engage with the other side. It's all very well to be an activist and an advocate and point at somebody else who's the bad guy or the perceived bad guy because of what they're doing or what they're not doing. But they're the ones that potentially have the influence and they're the ones that potentially hold the power Power to be able to make the changes and so you've got to have that dialogue with these people and you've got to have those conversations even if you know it sounds like you were very lucky with the group of 30 there but sometimes they're not quite as welcoming but if you're going to make any changes you've got to work and speak to the people who you want to be able to change and so I think that's such an important message there Matthew. Yeah exactly I mean we should be allies with farmers not seeing each other as enemies really because a lot of the vegans in as an example, we want to buy British produce. They want to sell produce in the UK. So, you know, we share that goal. We might disagree with the product lines, but at the end of the day, farmers just want to be custodians of the land. 
They want to go about their business. They want to obviously earn money to look after their families. So if we can work together and, you know, in terms of a transition towards more plant-based, then if vegans and farmers got together and spoke to the government as a combined unit, we'd have a lot more success because shifting subsidies and the tax system from one system to another, you know, if we're all working together, we can change. You're obviously working on this um, seed funding and the next stage of projects for you, which obviously you're going to start and then pass on to somebody else. And then like if we were to interview you in two years time, it'd be something completely new again, I'm sure. But for the immediate future for you, what are your biggest ambitions for the next couple of years, do you think? Yeah, with Veg Capital, I've only been working on it for about two months. So I'm still finding my feet. Venture Capital is something that not great deal of experience in but I'm learning fast but one thing that I would love to do is encourage new money to come into the movement I can see myself moving towards setting up a a new fund and going out there to pension funds and hedge funds and uh, institutional investors high net worth individuals to instead of investing their money in tech or health or bad industries such as animal agriculture or oil and gas or whatever to convince them that it makes a lot of sense for them to invest in plant-based and it's better for the environment for the planet as a whole for animals obviously so that seems like a worthy thing for for me not just me but others to be working on because we're underfunded the animal rights movement is underfunded there's a lot more money going into the plant-based food space but there could still be a lot more and we could achieve a lot more if we had more resources so that seems like something that you know i'd like to work on and um the other thing is i'm a natural born entrepreneur so again i've only just started this new thing so I don't want to, <laughs> but don't be surprised launching a new business So, Matt, are you going to sign up to this year's Veganuary now after listening to that incredible podcast with Matt, other Matt, not you? No. Um, (laughs) No, probably not. Um, I don't have the commitment um, or the motivation, unfortunately. But what about you, Harry? Are you going to do it this January? I'm kind of constantly aspiring to be vegan anyway. I would say probably 95% of the time, 90 to 95% of the time, I am vegetarian the rest of the time, 95% of the time, probably vegan. Mm. Maybe this is a push I need to do that extra, you know, get it all the way up to 100%. I hope so. Maybe I will give it a go. Maybe now is the opportunity. Put my money where my mouth is. I'll be very impressed if you do, Harry. So that was an excellent end to season two, Harry. I thought Matthew was a fantastic guest and very timely because Veganuary is starting in January and we will provide links to all these resources on the website and our podcast. For you to be able to sign up to Veganuary 2021 and be the million and one-th person. I suppose, Harry, that's it for season two. It is. When are we going to be back, Matt? We are going to come back in 2021, hopefully, with a new season, but also maybe even a new format or some new ideas and just a bit of a change, I think. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? But we will be back for season three by popular demand, I guess. And <laughs> <laughs> Number one in Croatia. They're begging for season three yeah. in Croatia. 
in the meantime, have a wonderful, wonderful festive period. For those of you that celebrate Christmas, have a happy Christmas. For those of you that celebrate something else, happy Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, whatever it is that you celebrate, however you celebrate it, I wish you a wonderful season and a happy new year. And I hope that 2021 is COVID-free and good for you. And thank you for listening. Thank you for sharing and liking and joining Matt and I this year across two seasons for the Animal Chat podcast and look forward to welcoming you back sometime with a brand new season. Harry summed it up perfectly. Thank you so much to every single one of you, the nearly 5,000 people that have listened to this podcast this year. We will be back next year, but in the meantime, enjoy yourselves. Thanks again for listening, everyone. Bye. Thank you, everyone. Bye. 